The reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that, you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And also Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the Lord gives the the second giving of the law, and he's talking to the people before they enter into the promised land. He does not want them to forget who he is and not to think of him in ways as the nations around them or as the gods of Egypt where they had many gods, gods of fertility and gods of planting and gods of the, the seasons and so on. And when he speaks through Moses, uh, there in Deuteronomy 6, he urges the people to fear him and to keep his commandments, to be careful to do all of them as they enter into the land. And then in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He alone is God. There is none other. We look Tonight, we begin to look at Belgic Confession Article 1. We believe and confess that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, and this God is eternal. Belgic Confession begins with God. That's where the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That's the statement. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. That is where it all begins, when creation came into existence, God already was from eternity. That's where all true confession and true understanding has its foundation in God. If we want to understand the world and ourselves, we must learn about God from God. It's because many people don't know him that we are where we are morally today. Children, we study about many things, or we investigate many things. We, we look into sports figures. We look into politicians. We want to learn their background, their, their history, where they come from. You know, can we, can we trust them? Do we know what the, how they're going to act, how they're going to uh, uh, maybe govern? Well, we spend all this time reflecting on such characters for politics or because we're interested in sports, the statistics of these sports figures, but very little time looking at the one who's made us. And that is so very important for us to consider. There's nothing more important than learning about God. The doctrine is not just for the theologically inclined, but for fruitful, meaningful living. Study of God leads to worship of God, which is the purpose for our existence. Over the next few weeks... We'll look at who God is as he has revealed himself. And that's important when we think about Christianity. Christianity is not a man-made religion. It is God's self-revelation, as we'll see in a few moments. When God meets Moses there in Exodus chapter 3 and speaks to Moses, and Moses asks him to identify himself, who, whom shall I say has sent me, the God of your fathers, that's the description that he gives. He says, whom shall I say sent me? And the Lord says, tell them I am who I am has sent you. Well, I will be perfectly honest. This is a very challenging sermon. 
I've been wrestling with it all week. How do you describe God? (laughs) He is other. He is eternal. He is completely unlike us. And yet we must begin with him. And as we will see at the end of the sermon this evening, that this study of God has application for us in ways that ground us and give us peace and help us to live faithfully. Who is God? Well, God cannot be compared to any other thing. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself. He is pure existence. As I said, friends, we're in the deep end of the pool tonight. I hope you have your flotation devices on. I was thinking about this, putting books out in front of me, trying to think, well, how am I going to how am I going to describe this? How am I going to preach this? And I had all these books out. I thought, well, I'll go to Dr. Sproul. He's, he's usually helpful in these sorts of things. And I watched him yesterday, and I listened, and I thought, well, first off, he gets a whole hour in this particular video that I was watching. And second off, he starts talking about things like ontological necessity and logical necessity. And I thought, well, that's not going to, that's not going to hit us quite right. And so we, we sit and we ask ourselves, How can we understand who God is? And the reality is only as he has revealed himself to us, and we can't know God as he is in himself, in his infinity. And yet we ought to, in fact, we need to know God and to live for God. The doctrine we're talking about is aseity. I wondered about whether I should even say that word, but it's a theological term, ase, Latin meaning in himself. He has being in himself. He is not dependent on anything or anyone outside of himself, the aseity or aseity, depending on your Latin pronunciation, of God. It is this doctrine about God which declares the glory of God. We don't want to think about God as a greater than us being. He is completely other than us. We can be imitators of God. We can share in communicable attributes, those attributes that he calls us to exhibit, and we'll see those as we move ahead in coming weeks, goodness, justice, those things which are spoken of here uh, in this article. But God himself is other than us. So then how do we know him? We know him because he reveals himself to us. B.B. Warfield, in his teaching on Revelation, says this about Christianity. This is where I come back to what I was saying just a few moments ago, that Christianity is not a man-made religion. Listen to this. Christianity is fundamentally different from all other religions in that it is a revealed religion. It's not about our search for God. It is not a religion that works its way upward. It is all about God coming to us. In grace, he makes himself known to us and makes a way for us to enjoy fellowship with him. And that is what matters. I did get this from Dr. Sproul yesterday. He said, the idea that we're called human beings is something of a a bad description because being is not inherent to us. We are created. We don't have being in ourselves. God gives us life. God has being. He is being. We can truly speak of him as an eternal being. He gives life. And he wants us then to be in fellowship with him. He reveals that also. He says, I am God and I want, or it is my declaration that I will be your God and you will be my people. Have fellowship with him. Christianity then is a creedal religion. We have creeds. B.B. Warfield says this, it's grounded in propositions from God that must be embraced. Since Christianity is distinctively a revealed religion, then it is also uniquely authoritative. 
He says it does not offer itself as the best of human thinking about God or even the best or most successful of human efforts to know God. It professes to be nothing less than the unique and exclusive word from God, his own self-disclosure. And we need to study theology. We need to study about God. Why? Well, I'll give you two reasons tonight. There may be more that we could develop, but tonight these two. First, for growth. One has written this, the study of God and his attributes is one of the building blocks of our faith. A child has no building blocks when he's young. He will not grow up to be a master builder. So too, if we have no knowledge of God as his children, we will not grow up in godliness. So to learn of him is to learn what we are to be. We cannot be God, but we are called to imitate God, Ephesians 5 says. To be imitators of him in the way we live. To learn of him and then to live. To make much of him. To bear his likeness. So first, for growth. Second, to avoid error. We need to study the word of God to fight against our bad impulses. It's been said that in the beginning God made man in his image and man's been returning the favor ever since. Seeking to make God in his own image, which has led to a weakness in the church, which has led to a fearfulness among Christians because they do not truly understand the one true God. Survey was taken some years ago. Do you believe in God? The answer was 97%. But of those, the breakdown of of 25% of those who answered yes, 25% had unbiblical views about God, 4% believed everyone is God, 3% said there are many gods, 7% believed that God is the total realization of human potential, and 11% believed that God is the state of higher consciousness which we can achieve. That led one observer to say, does Does anyone believe in the God of the Bible who says, you shall have no other gods before me? Not of your making, not of your understanding, but as I reveal myself in the Word. Wonder what percentage today would say they believe in God and what or who God is for them. Well, to develop our understanding of the doctrine of the aseity of God, we confess with Scripture a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. God alone is God. Hear, O people, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. There are not many gods, those in competition with each other, fighting, trying to gain supremacy. There is only one God. And listen to this glorious testimony from him. In Isaiah 44, he says this, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. There's that relational concept. God says, I exist. I am and I want to be in fellowship with you. I want you to be saved from your sin that you might be in relationship with me. Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I have purposed and I will do what I decree. God alone exists and he will do what he decrees. God is. What does it mean to confess God as a simple being? Secondly, this evening, it doesn't mean that God is easy to understand. cannot mean that. For over and over in his word, God says this, my ways are beyond finding out. My judgments are beyond your full understanding, Romans 11.33. His thoughts are so far above our thoughts that we can never fully understand All that he does, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. No one can claim to so know God that they can be his counselor, Romans 11, 34. 
One systematic theologian says this, the simplicity of God means that he is not composed of various parts, such as the body and soul of man. It's not subject to division. God cannot be divided up like a pie, one part the Father, one part the Son, one part the Spirit, or one part love, one part justice, one part mercy, one part righteousness, one part holiness, whatever you want to say. We talk about all of these attributes. We talk about all of these parts of God that we might understand him better, but he holds them all perfectly together in unity. There's not one that is supreme over another. There is no tension within God. God is 100% love. He's 100% just. He's 100% holy and so forth. All of his attributes, he cannot be divided or deconstructed. We need to confess this reality about God, his simplicity, because throughout history, many errors about God have been taught and continue to be taught today. We hear people today who say, well, what is God like? They say, well, God is love or God is justice, or God is this, or God is that, and we're talking about those attributes that God has within himself, but they are not one any greater than another. He exercises them in perfect unity. Not as though in one moment his love takes the front seat, and another moment his justice takes the front seat, and on and on it goes as though there's a musical chair between his attributes, is changing. He has all of his attributes perfectly at all times. He holds all and expresses all that he is perfectly. When the Bible says something like, God is love, it's not saying that that's all God is, but it indicates that he is love. When it says that God is holy, it's not saying that it is all that he is, but it is one aspect of his being. When he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And the children's children to the third and fourth generation. No tension between these, between his love, his faithfulness, his judging of sin. God holds these perfectly together. We confess also that God is spirit. That's how Jesus reveals him in John 4.24. He says God is spirit when he's speaking of the Father. And he and the Father are one. He's come from heaven and gives perfect testimony concerning the Father. He says, I have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He gives perfect explanation of God. The spirituality then and the simplicity of God go together as a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So a spirit cannot be cut up into parts as though God were many different gods. Confessing God to be spiritual also means that he is different from us. There's nothing earthly about God, nothing creaturely except in the Son, in Christ, who took on flesh. We also confess God is eternal. He has no temporal restraints. He lives forever and is everywhere present. There's no past, present, and future. God has all things before him at all times. Now, wrap your head around that. It's, it's not possible for us in our time and space perspective. We have past, present, and future, for God all is eternally before him. He lives forever and is everywhere present at all time. His wisdom is an eternal wisdom. He's not growing in wisdom. His power is an eternal power. He's not growing or diminishing in power. His goodness is an eternal goodness. He's not growing in goodness or waning in goodness. Truly, we are treading on hallowed ground. This is the glory of God, that he is completely unlike us. Say, well, pastor, thank you for all of that theology. Can we try to apply? Well, let's look at a few things tonight as we think about this doctrine of God. And our last point this evening We're not just receiving this 
doctrine for knowledge. Paul warns that knowledge puffs up. It's possible to just take all this in and say, well, at least I know who God is, or I have a working definition of who God is. But what what about this knowledge of God helps us then live for Him? Because that is why we exist. We exist to live for His glory. It's the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I see the children quoting it very good. That is why we exist. So, what does all this say to us? How does this help us then to walk faithfully and without fear in this world where so much seems to militate against the reality of God's sovereignty and of His being? When we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths this truth about God, first we receive tremendous comfort. God will accomplish his plans. There is no other. There's not another being that will keep him from accomplishing his plans. He says, I have determined my purpose and it will stand. That's the comfort. That's the the, the grit that we can have as we live in this world, knowing that nothing will keep God from accomplishing his purpose. For his people and for his glory. Paul says it this way, he who began a good work in you will complete it. There is no one and nothing that can keep him from this. We receive tremendous comfort. Secondly, we are assured that he can give what we need. Little children, do not fear. Your father knows what you need and he will provide all things necessary for your physical and spiritual need. There is nothing that He does not provide to you that you need when you need it. All things necessary for life and godliness. Do you need bread? He provides it. Do you need comfort? He can give it. Do you struggle with hope? He can work it. And he says, I want you to communicate to me. There is nothing that I lack, nothing that I am short of by which to give just what you need. God is self-sufficient. He has everything in himself. He does not lack for resources. He, does not, he says in Psalm 50, do not, cry to, or do not offer sacrifices to me as though I need sacrifices. He says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, rather, call upon me. And the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. How can he say that with such certainty? Because there is no other who can keep him from accomplishing that promise. He lovingly provides, and he is strong to save. When Paul speaks about God to the people there on Mars Hill with their many gods, makes very clear that God has no need of anything. We see that passage in the bulletin tonight, and I want to look at that. We don't have time to expound on that tonight, but Acts chapter 17, if you want to follow along, verses 24 to 31, I'm going to read those as we see that God is the one who is perfect being and who gives life to all things from himself, for he is life. Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, Paul says, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. He needs nothing from us, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. We are made alive. We are given life from the one who is perfect being, perfect life, eternal life. As even some of your poets have said, continues Paul, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Speaking of Jesus and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul speaks of the sons being raised by the father, which we will look at, Lord willing, next Sunday. Paul says, repent of idolatry, repent of any notion that you are giving to God as though he has any need. Embrace the one true God. He has made us for him. Well, now wait a minute, does he, does he live on our, our praise? Is that what Paul's saying, that he, he needs our praise? We do see in, in the scriptures throughout, right? Praise the Lord. Is, is there something lacking in God? Is there something that he, he does need? Maybe praise. Maybe it's thanksgiving that he needs, as though he's, he's craving, he's made us because he's craving praise that he did not have. No. Thirdly, this doctrine clearly teaches that God does not need our praise. God did not make us because he was needy. He was perfectly happy in glory. You remember Jesus' high priestly prayer. What does he say in John 17? Restore to me the glory that I had with you from the beginning or from eternity. There is perfect fellowship, perfect glory, perfect praise, perfect wonder in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God does not make creation because he's needy. He's clear in his word. He doesn't need us. We need him. And he wants us to come to him, as we've just heard in Acts 17, to repent, to believe. For he has revealed that there is coming a day when judgment shall be rendered concerning how we look to his son, whether we believe in him or reject him. But when we lift our voices, God receives our worship, yet he is not lacking worship. In Revelation 4, we see the heavenly host declaring that he is worthy to receive glory, worthy to receive honor, worthy to receive praise. But he is not needing it from us. He delights that we would give him praise and delight in his glory and give thanks to him as the source of life. But he creates us out of the overflow of his goodness, according to his good pleasure, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, for no other reason, this was his will, that we might be for the praise of his glory. That's how we leave the house in the morning. That's how we enter the house at night. That's how we go about our lives. We are to live for the praise of his glory. And he lays out that Reality, what does that look like in his word from Genesis to Revelation? What does it look like to live for the praise of his glory? He declares, because this is so, this is now how then you should live. Not something to be compartmentalized for Sunday worship, but it is something that is to be realized day to day, moment by moment, hour by hour. This doctrine, while hard for us to wrap our heads around, highlights the glory of God who is like no other, who exists in himself and reveals himself that we might worship him in awe. I'll close with this statement that I found in one of the readings I was looking at this week on this matter. The author says this, If God were not life in and of himself... If he were not independent of us, then he would not be worthy, qualified, or able to save us, let alone worthy to receive worship and praise. If God were not self-sufficient, then he would be weak and pathetic, for he would be needy and dependent too. He would need saving just as we do. It is precisely because God is free from creation that he's able to save lost sinners like you and me. If God were a needy God, he would need our help just as much as we need his. What good news it is, then, that the gospel depends on a God who does not depend on us or anything else. That is to the praise of his glory, and that is to the security of our faith, that if we trust in him, he will bring us to himself 
and grant us life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that descriptor which your Son has called us to use, we realize that you are far and above all of creation. You reign supreme. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. There is none like you. Lord, we ask that as we live each and every day, that we would keep before you or before us your glory, that we might have the comfort of knowing you, your sovereignty, that we might know that you give whatever we need, that you do not need us to enthrone you, that you call us to recognize that you are enthroned above the heavens. Comfort and encourage us, we pray in our study, as we consider how this truth leads to the strengthening of our faith and to the fruitfulness of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Number 230 in our hymnals is our response. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Let's, Let's stand to sing the four stanzas of number 230. pray. Most holy God, we are so thankful for your love and for your compassion, for your kindness, 
to us in our weakness. Your loving grace and mercy which shapes and molds us to be temples in which your spirit dwells by which we might serve you. We're so thankful for those agencies and those places that exhibit care and compassion for those with special needs physically, for those with developmental disabilities. We ask, Lord, for Beth Shan, receive blessing from you and all of the caregivers, the board of directors, those who consider how to look at the economic future and security of that organization. Lord, we ask for fruitfulness there, for provision there, that you would provide all that they need, that the residents there would be becoming all that you would have them to be, that in this we might see your gracious hand and your kindness. Hear us, we pray, as we give our offerings along with these prayers. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Congregation, let us stand as we confess our faith together using the words of the Nicene Creed found on page 852 in the back of the hymnal. We reflect upon the glory of our God, three in one. It is in response to the question, Christian, what is it that you believe that we say? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, 
very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Just a moment, we'll receive the parting blessing, we'll sing the doxology, and then men of accord will sing a few more selections before we dismiss. Congregation, receive this parting blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen.
I want to get a, there we go. I want to thank you for coming tonight and reminding us again of that great message and uh, for the accompaniment as well. And uh, we are going to have a time of fellowship afterwards, but we thank you for bringing that uh, encouraging message once again, reminding us that Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory over sin and death and hell. We are dismissed.